0: What is this week for the uh, the quarantine? Is this four weeks of lockdown? I've lost track. I do find it interesting that, that we can safely line up outside grocery stores and wait our turn to go in and buy food, but we can't line up outside our places of worship to receive the most important food, Holy Communion. Have you seen this video of the man who was violently pulled off a bus in Philadelphia by... Let's call them overzealous, over-officious police officers. He wasn't wearing a mask. Okay, so I get it. Big deal. Give him a mask. Wouldn't that have solved the problem? Just simply give the man a mask. Did they really have to pull him off the bus so violently? You know, what I've come to realize is when in the interest of slowing the spread of this virus, violent criminals are being released from prison and priests are being thrown in prison. At this point, I think we can officially say the cure may just be worse than the disease. We are, however, going to take a a respite from coronavirus tonight. I think we can all take a little break. Speaking of uh, gathering around the fire, the electronic bonfire, there are stories to be told aplenty over the next two hours. TV legend John Barber is here. He'll be joining us live for the uh, full two hours from his home in Lost Wages, Nevada. John was here last fall, having just published his autobiography, Your Mother's Not a Virgin, the bumpy life and times of a Canadian dropout who changed the face of American TV, and the the creator and co-host of Real People, will join me in mere moments. Carlos Cagini is my technical producer and Ryan White is the live stream producer and we are live streaming this radio program on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. Uh, You know, we had some TV rituals around our house when I was uh, growing up. Saturday night, of course, was hockey night in Canada. Sunday was 60 minutes, back when it was Mike Wallace and Morley Safer. And Wednesdays at 8 p.m., From the late 70s to about 1984, it was Real People. This was a program that featured real people as opposed to celebrities, real people with unique occupations and hobbies. And it's been heralded as the first reality TV show. The creator, co-producer and co-host... As I say here for the full two hours, not to talk only about real people, but uh, his storied show business career as a stand-up comedian, writer, TV talk show host, film critic, his, his friendships with Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Red Fox, Lenny Bruce, his interviews with Jim Garrison. John Barber dropped out of high school in Toronto at 15 and was deported From the United States, where he sought his fame and fortune at 17, he's recognized, as I say, as the godfather of reality TV, as the creator, producer, co-host, writer of the trend-setting hit Real People. He won the first of his five Emmys as the original host of AMLA in 1970, where he interviewed controversial anti-war guests like Muhammad Ali, Cesar Chavez, and Jane Fonda. He was the first in America to do film reviews on the news, winning three more consecutive uh, Emmys at KNBC's Critic at Large and 10 years as Los Angeles Magazine's most widely read and quoted controversial critic. Prior to that, he was a successful topical stand-up comedian, appearing on The Dean Martin Show, The Tonight Show, and others, and in Las Vegas opening for Robert Goulet and Bobby Darin. Comedian activist Dick Gregory did the liner notes for his first album, It's Tough to Be White, and playwright Neil Simon did them for his second album, I Met a Man I Didn't Like. In 1992, John wrote and directed the award-winning The Garrison Tapes, which director Oliver Stone heralded as the perfect companion piece to his JFK movie 25 years later. In 2017, he wrote and directed part two called The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy – which leading researchers applauded as the definitive film on JFK and the rise of fake news, which plagues America to this day. John said, quote, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, just a storyteller. John Barber, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you?
1: Well, Richard, thank you. Thank you so much. I feel like I've almost died, and you spoke in the eulogy at my funeral. <laughs> that was absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Uh, and you mentioned some of the difficulties today because of the lockdown here in eastern Las Vegas. Now, you know, Toronto is probably a 12- or 14-hour town. New York is probably a 12- or 14-hour town. But Las Vegas, Nevada is... At 24-hour town. So when the lights go off in Las Vegas, it's like the lights went off all over the world. I mean, because this is the Vatican for 24-hour entertainment. And it's right now, it's like living in Rod Serling's Twilight Zone. And I wake up this morning to the the news that some folks beat up a guy who wasn't wearing a mask. So I said said to my wife, well, so much for social distancing. And, of course, (laughs) everybody, everybody is asking me how I feel about this lockdown. So I must tell you, Richard, very honestly, it has not affected me in the least. Not in the least. Now you think, well, gosh, how can anybody say that? I mean, look at this. You know, I'm upset that the golf courses are closed. I mean, I spent 35 years perfecting my swing. And two years ago, I mastered my swing. And the next day, <laughs> they shut down the golf courses. Timing is everything in life. When I was mm-hmm. a comic, my timing was really good. But in real life, my timing wasn't so good. I remember one of my very early jokes in my act was that my luck is so bad If I ever bought a cemetery plot, I'd probably drown at sea. (laughs) And I'll tell you why. I feel almost every day of my life I have been in quarantine. Every day of my life, for me, Richard, has been an uncertainty. You mentioned I was born in Toronto. That's true. You didn't mention where I was born. I was born in the Salvation Army Charity Ward. My father deserted me in 1939. It was so horrible in our house. He enlisted in the Canadian Army and went off to the peace and quiet of World War II. (laughs) And and my mother brought uncles into the house like there were grapes. They came in bunches. I was out in the street most of the time when I was six years of age. There was a reformatory on Kingston Road called St. John's. I spent most of my time there because they had the greatest outdoor rinks. And then I was in the manor theater most of the time where I could see a double feature for five cents or I was in the jail on main street. And fortunately I ended up in the jail. I say fortunately, because when I got out I realized the library was across the street and that's where I spent most of my time. So I had a total life of uncertainty And then uh, I ran away to the United States to become a professional gambler when I was 16 with $700. I went over a three-month period playing poker after I'd mastered the art of poker by memorizing a book called on Cards. And I came to the United States to be a professional gambler, but I was here illegally. So I had a total life of uncertainty because, God, is immigration going to catch me? And a year later, indeed... They caught me. As a matter of fact, I was deported a second time. I was deported when I was 29. And then when you're a gambler, you have the uncertainty of whether or not you're going to have a future or make a living at it. And the amazing thing is I did well. And I did so well, Richard, I quit. Now, isn't that bizarre?
0: I yeah, you write about how once you actually figured out how to play the game and not lose, you lost your emotional attachment for it. So subsequently, you lost your addiction.
1: Exactly, because when I decided I was going to become a professional gambler at 16 and got the books and learned how to do it, when I sat down at the table, my game was single deck blackjack, and you didn't have to count the cards, you just had to know the odds and the permutations of any poll and how to place your bets, and that's what it is that I did, but all of a sudden I realized when I was a kid and for two years lost everything I could earn or steal, which I did a lot, Till the cops got me and convicted me a couple of times. I was doing it to make friends. I wasn't doing it to make money. Yeah, we were lonely. I, were lonely. That, that, that's it. And you mentioned
0: escaping to the Manor Theater to watch, you know, all these great screen legends, Orson Welles and Citizen Kane and so forth. Did you see Frank Sinatra on the big screen at the Manor? Because I want to talk about your first real-life encounter with Frank Sinatra because it's just fascinating.
1: I'd be happy to tell you that. Just let me put this sort of in fast-forward for you. So when I decided to become a comic, and I decided to become a comic because to me the best person on television at the time was a guy named Jack Parr, the original host of The Tonight Show. And he used to do an opening monologue. And I thought that's how you ended up getting a talk show, which is what I wanted to do. So if you're a comic... It becomes a more uncertain world. Now I ended up in Los Angeles, as you mentioned. I became the first person to review movies on the news. And here I am writing honest and funny reviews of the people in this town who could hire me. And I was being honest. And if you're honest, you know that 99% of the stuff that they make is crap. As a matter of fact, when I decided years later to quit because I got real people on the air, Neil Simon called me. And he said, John, you can't quit. I mean, who else is going to tell the emperors who make these movies that they're wearing no clothes? And I said to him, well, Neil, frankly, I found found it very difficult to find original ways to say it's a piece of shit. And it's true. So (laughs) what was happening was then I create real people. Now, here I'm creating this show in a town that has nothing but writers and directors And actors who won't work again if there's a lot of reality television. So they hated me even more. And I was more quarantined at that time. And then three years later, I got fired over trying to tell Jim Garrison's story. And then what happens to me? My quarantine gets deeper because I'm chosen by Mr. Garrison over Oliver Stone to be uh, the Boswell to tell his story in the two movies that you mentioned he was in America the most reviled and hated man by the US government and the American media because they couldn't stand to investigate the truth of the crime that he solved so that became very difficult for me so I've gotten used to being quarantined all of that as a rehearsal and I got a lot more to say about (laughs) where we are now and what's going to happen. But back to Frank Sinatra that you mentioned him. There was a movie called uh, Till the Clouds Roll By. It was a Jerome Kern story in Technicolor. Jerome Kern wrote the lyrics to one of the great musicals in history, which was Showboat. And at the end of the movie, there's Frank Sinatra on stage at the MGM or Fox Studios or wherever they made this a huge symphony orchestra. He's dressed in a white tuxedo on top of a white pedestal singing Old Man River, every bit as movingly as Paul Robeson, who sang it better than anybody on the planet. And then a week later, uh, I'm on a train and I'm bound for Las Vegas, and the train has an accident. Don't tell us about me with my guilty conscience. I think either the Toronto police are out looking for me or the immigration department knows this kid snuck across the border. Stop that train and get that guy off. So I hopped off the train, leaving a newspaper on the empty seat, and the uh, only place I could get to by bus was uh, Lake Tahoe. The bus dropped me off in front of the Cal Neva Lodge. And my God, it was like walking into an MGM musical. I mean, I was looking for Judy Garland and Mickey (laughs) Rooney, and I walk in there, and oh, God, it's in Technicolor. In those days, in those days, Richard, people used to dress up. Men were in suits and ties, and women were in suits and gowns. I mean... I mean, now if you were in Las Vegas, you wouldn't recognize it. People go to the shows, look like they just left Walmart. I mean, it's just gone. But in those days, it was, and I drank it all in. So I went to the end of the crap table. Now, on the cover of the book, you see a black and white picture of me with a fabulous, it was a blue suit and tie, but I'm wearing a Stetson. And the reason I bought the Stetson, I was only 17. And I was not old enough to gamble, so I stuck the hat on my head so that I looked like I I wouldn't be all hat and no cattle. <laughs> so if I start gambling, and I'm nervous because people starting to look at me, and I'm doing pretty well. And soon the dealers are looking at me, and the people at the bar are barred looking at me, and I realize, Richard, they're not looking at me; they're looking past me. And I turn around and coming through the front glass doors, there's Frank Sinatra with his overcoat over his shoulder, like an Italian Superman. And he was arm in arm with a fellow named Sam Giancana, mm. who was a mafia chieftain of Chicago. And the reason this 17 year old kid recognized him because it was a front page story on the cover of the newspaper. That's how I recognized them. Now, week earlier, I see him on this pedestal in Toronto. He's walking just three or four feet by me. Everybody got still. Nobody moved as they watched this giant of a star walking by us. And then little did I know that 20 some odd years later, I'd be his private writer for four and a half years. I mean, it's amazing. And my book is filled with those kinds of stories. If you're a dramatist, It's called foreshadowing. I mean, Agatha Christie and mystery writers and all those kind of mystery writers and drama writers foreshadow. They'll put something at the beginning of the story that will pop up later. You see it in Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes books, Agatha Christie books, all of the detective stories. I didn't plan that when I was recapturing my life and I told it in one sitting over a five-hour period, I never rewrote anything. As a matter of fact, I had to take out 300 pages to get it down to 700 some odd pages. I just wrote it once and that was it. And it was out of my system. And then I realized when I was finished, so many of the things that happened to me in the first part of my life popped up in the second part of my life. And one of the great things, of course, was Meeting and getting getting to know really, really well Francis Albert Sinatra. Right. How did how did you come
0: to write for him, uh, some twenty seven years after that first uh, encounter?
1: I was the uh, film critic at uh, Los Angeles Magazine. Gosh, you mentioned that. I don't know why that is, Richard. It's crystal clear. I want to tell you one of the things I miss. I miss being with you in Toronto right now, sitting next to you and talking to you. Because a year ago, when I went to Canada, when my book first came out, you had suggested to me that I hire this very bright uh, Toronto PR lady named Deborah Knight. And I I, I didn't know of her and I'd already hired somebody. So I rushed my trip to Toronto because I thought, The media would welcome me with open arms. I mean, here's a guy that changed the face of American television, for crying out loud, told the most definitive stories about Jim Garris and the solving of the JFK assassination. I thought I would get medals and stuff. I was almost totally ignored, except by you and a few other people. Right. For once in your life, you couldn't get arrested. I that's very funny being the I could not <laughs> get arrested I did no major book signing so just before I left I, I was on your show which was wonderful I just really enjoyed it a lot then I met Deborah and I hired Deborah, and she was worth and, and, and it was expensive I won't tell you how much but it was expensive she had arranged for me for the first week in April to be in Toronto to do not only your show, but major media, not that your show isn't major media, there's major internet, but I mean major mainstream media, and book signings at Eaton's Indigo. And then the second week, thanks also to her and another publicist in the States, a publicist of the stars, by the way, I was to be doing major media in New York City, And there was such a demand for me to come and sign books that the uh, bookstore hired a theater. And I was going to go on stage and talk to the audience and do questions and answers and stay for hours and sign books. Now, because John,
0: i sorry for the interruption. I got to take a quick break. We'll come back and and pick it up on the other side. My friend, John Barber, the creator of Real People and his memoir, Your Mother is Not a Virgin. Back with more right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. John Barber stays with us. The godfather of reality television, stand-up comedian, writer, producer, film critic. His uh, autobiography, Your Mother's Not a Virgin, The Bumpy Life and Times of a Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American TV. Uh, I just wanted to circle back to uh, Francis Albert and and how you came to write for him. So you were a, a film critic.
1: Yes, and, I was a uh, critic for Los Angeles Magazine for 10 years. I was five years at uh, KNBC, and I won Emmys three years in a row at uh, NBC for it. And they tried to put me under contract, Richard, and I refused to sign a contract because if I signed a contract, they would own my material, and I didn't want anybody to own my stuff. So, And I was fired three times. They kicked me off the news three times for stuff that I'd reviewed. But that's how I came to accidentally meet Francis Albert Sinatra. And how did that uh, how did he ask you or why did he ask you to write for him? Uh I was it, it's it's just bizarre how these things happen. Just bizarre. None of it was planned. All the great things that happened to me, Richard. And I'm a non-believer, as you know, but it was like divine intervention. It's like my life was replanted. All of the disasters in my life were those things that I planned well. But all the good things came to me by accident. Uh, I was reviewing a movie called The Great Gatsby with Robert Redford. And at the time, it was the most heralded, about to be the most heralded movie Uh, in America in about 10 years it would be that week on the cover of Time Magazine and News uh, Week the president of Paramount Studios Phyllis Diller I mean, excuse me, Barry Diller Uh, (laughs) he's, he's actually more of a Phyllis than a Barry if you know who he was but in any event he was taking bows all over America for this masterpiece that he created and he said at the time Richard, it cost only $3 to go to a movie in America. And he said that this film would be in such demand, he was going to double the price, uh, he called it a hard ticket price of $6. But not only would Paramount investors and stockholders make a fortune from the movie, they would make a fortune from the Gatsby clothing Because Robert Redford and the lady stars in the movie were dressed magnificently. The color was magnificent. Dick Clayton was the director. But the problem was it was a lousy movie. And they told the story of Gatsby backwards. And the reason they told it backwards, because that's how they told it in the book. And to explain that to you, they start out and they show this big party, a a billionaire's party. And everybody at this party, as the camera goes around, is unlikable. They look great. They look, they look rich. And they look obscene. They look disgusting. You can't like any of them. Not till the very end of the movie did that you realize that Gadsby came from the same kind of background I did. But by that time, we didn't care about him. We didn't care about him at all. So I literally bombed the movie. And the last line of the review was in order for Paramount to get $6 for this film, they're going to have to charge three to get in and three to get out. <laughs> Yikes. Well, in any event, that quote was picked up by everybody, and the movie justifiably bombed. Anyway, I got a call from a guy named George Slaughter. George Slaughter was the uh, owner and co-creator of Laugh-In. Laugh-in was co- originally created by an English drunk named Digby Wolfe. It was a time of the sit-ins and everything during the protest movements of the late 60s. And he said, why not call it Laugh-In? Uh, uh, George, being a smart businessman, ended up owning the show. But it was Dig- Digby who really crafted it. And it only lasted three years because, do you remember Rowan and Martin? Oh, Yes. Okay so it became known as Rowan and Martin's laughing which drove slaughter nuts it drove him into court with lawsuits and the sh- and the show died but being a smart businessman he had a contract to do some more variety shows anyway at the time he calls me and he said I just uh, uh, could I can I buy those jokes that you write for your reviews he said to me And I said, well, George, they're free. They're already in the magazine. You can just take them. I don't care. And he says, but there's so many and they're so good. And so I said, George, you know, I have a better idea. Why not? I'm a critic at large. Nothing in laughing is more than eight or 12 seconds long. Let me come on as your critic at large. Let me do my own jokes and I'll help you write anything else. He said, when can you start? So I went the next day, and I, myself, and George Slaughter and Digby Wolf ended up writing. They had a, a, a special for four revivals of Laugh-In, and George refused to hire a host because he wanted sole credit for owning this show and being the producer of this show. And so what happens is I am, I'm, I'm assigned to write a bunch of Sinatra stuff. And I'm thrilled to do it. Oh, my God. You're kidding me. I don't, I'm going to write write this up. Anyway, the show had no audience. Everything was a laugh track. When Sinatra came in, he came in with his entourage again. And he can be very tough. And I was so afraid of him that I went to the very back of the studio, stood way, twenty five, fifty yards from him, up near the roof. And Digby and George are on stage with the paper from the writers and the stuff that they wrote and uh, hand some papers. George Slaughter hands some papers to uh, Sinatra. And Sinatra's very tough. Who wrote this shit? Who wrote this crap? And He's throwing papers on the ground. I mean, he doesn't even hand it back to George. Then George runs out of paper. And Sinatra says, well, that, is that it? And Digby handed him some piece of paper. And look at this. And he looks and he starts chuckling. And what I had done, one of the first jokes was about a guy in New Jersey who was in prison for uh, a major crime, but he was interviewed by the Democratic Party to be a possible candidate to be the next governor. I forget the joke itself, but Sinatra loved it. It writes itself. <laughs> yeah, and so he kept reading these New Jersey jokes, and he loved them because he was from Hoboken, for God's sake. Sure, sure. And he said, who wrote this? And Digby says, Johnny. So he turns around, he looks way up at me, and he says, hey, kid, and he, 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 he uses his index finger to call me down. Now, I'm no kid. I'm like 44, something like that. So I come scurrying down and I'm standing in front of him and he's looking at me. Now I knew that he hated. Rex Reed, do you remember who Rex Reed was? Oh yeah, another film critic. He yeah, but he was a star film critic. I was yes. just local, but he was in the national press and he was on all kinds of television shows. He was in the, even in a movie called Myra Breckenridge. But Sinatra hated him, and he's staring and he's looking at me. He said, "Hold it, aren't you the guy that's the critic on the NBC News with Tom Snyder?" And I said, "Yes, sir." I'm the guy they call the heterosexual Rex Reed. Okay. Well, he started howling. Oh, my God. And then Digby says to him, well, you know, John just put out an album with a line of notes by Dick Gregory called The Stuff to be White. And he screams. He said, give me one. Give me one. I want to show Sammy. And I said, oh, no, Mr. Sinatra. The L.A. Times bombed it. They said it was the worst-taste comedy album in history. And he said, that's great. It makes me want to see it even more. Get it to me. He gives me his card. My secretary's name's Dorothy. Offices are across the street at Formosa Studios. Get it there right away. I, mess- I messenger it myself to make sure it gets it. and I put it in Dorothy's hands. And I must tell you, to me, that was the end of it. It was over with. I, Oh, my God, I'm in seventh heaven, to God's sake. Sinatra likes my stuff. The very next day, I get a hand-delivered letter to my house, and it's on my wall, and it's in the book, and Sinatra says, you're all mine, and you and I are going to do something someday. And so then he called because he had to do uh, a couple of engagements and he wanted some jokes so i wrote him a couple of jokes he sent me 10 brand new 100 hundred dollar bills nice and i and i i called back uh, he gave me his private number and i called him back and i would call him mr sinatra and he kept telling me i had to call him francis john you're a friend now you're going to call me francis i said would you do me a favor and just send me a check for a dollar? I don't care so I can frame it, but I don't want to spend this money. And he said, John, if you don't spend it, you don't write another joke. And so every whether I wrote one joke or a letter, do you know Kitty Kelly's book, His Way?
0: Yes, yes. Uh, the
1: Unauthorized Biography, another lady he done, did not like, but one of the letters I wrote for him to People Magazine is quoted by Kitty Kelly in the book. As coming from Sinatra, it didn't. It, it came from me, and I did that for four and a half years. Now I'll tell you the warmest story to me about about Francis. I'm going to get you to hold on to that story, John.
0: Okay. okay. We're going to take a time out here, and uh, we'll do that that right after this. John Barber, the creator, host, co-producer of Real People from 1979 to 1984 on NBC. And his memoir, Your Mother's Not a Virgin. Bumpy life and times of a Canadian dropout who changed the face of American TV. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarant. John Barber is with us for the full two hours. We will open up the phone lines in the second hour and take questions and comments. So back oh, to Frank that's Sinatra. Great.
1: Oh, that's great. I just love talking to people. Thank Wonderful. you so much.
0: So, so uh, Frank Sinatra, you wrote jokes for him, not only jokes, you wrote letters, you wrote a lot of things for him, but for four and a half years, uh, and you were kind to tell us about maybe one of the most touching moments uh, between you and Francis Albert.
1: Yes, it, 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 it was, um, you know, I had uh, quite accidentally stumbled across the idea for real people. When I was a critic, I was seated in the the smallest office in the building, but I right next to the teletype machines. And so I would, you know, get up when I would hear them rattle. Uh, it would bing. Uh, it was Reuters or Associated Press. And a lot of the stories came across the wire and they say not for broadcast. And one of the stories I ran across, the very first one I ran across was about a gorgeous uh, stripper in New York City, gorgeous, gorgeous woman, who billed herself as a stripper for God. And she said, my body was made by God, and God made a woman's body beautiful only so it would attract men. And she said, so I'm going to show my body to men as a stripper, and 10% of what they pay to see me, I will tie to my church. I thought, oh, my God, that's a story. So I began to collect them, and for three years, I could I could never sell them. I got to be uh, 46 years of age. I had won um, a bunch of Emmys, five Emmys. I'd also won a Golden Mike, the only one to win Mike, uh, uh, Emmys for news and entertainment. And I was unhirable because it was so controversial because I had tried to book Jim Garrison in 1970 on the AM show after I had read his book. And as soon as I booked him, I was fired and and he was canceled. But I thought it was just show business. I thought nothing about conspiracies at all. And when I got the idea for Real People and I'd shopped it all over, I had it at ABC for a while and they passed on it and I wanted Richard Pryor. To be my Byron Allen, and uh, uh, they they said no, they they passed on it, so I was out of the business. My son was ten years of age, and I had been away from my son for a long time. as a comic going on the road, I did not want to be away another minute from my son because I had an absentee father from the time I was six years of age. And I hated my father for that, even though I did track him down in 1960 in England, which, you know, is a story in the book. But in any event, I decided I'm going to give up the dream of being in show business. I'm going to give up the dream of being a comic or dream. give up the dream of being a talk show. And I literally quit the business. And I remember where I was. I was standing on the corner of Valley Spring and Foreman Avenue right next to the Lakeside Golf Course in front of my little bungalow. It was the first time in my life, Richard, that I was at total peace. Happiest person in my, I'd never been that happy. I'd given up. I thought I, you know, everybody wanted me to write jokes so I could write jokes, make a great living as a joke writer and spend the rest of my time with my son. So in any event, one day I'm in Francis office and, you know, he was the most unassuming fellow and professional along with Dean Martin that i had ever met. If you were in Francis's office. was Which was not very big. There were no plaques. There were no photos of him. With stars or anything. Because he knew who he was. He was content with his own company. He wore casual slacks. And a yellow shirt. And had this tan with him. And I had given him. Some stuff that he had wanted. And then he said to me. He said okay kid. He says, let's get ready to go on the road now. And uh, he tells me where he's going to be working. And he wants me to be his opening act. At the time, the fellow named Pat Henry, who was a friend of mine, was his opening act. And uh, I said to him, Francis, I can't. He says, what do you mean you can't? He said, you only make $350 a week, for God's sake, at NBC. You're going to make $5,000 a week or more. But more than that, everybody will know who you are. And they should see you. And I said to him, but Francis, so should my son. And he said, what do you mean, so should your son? So I said, you know, I'm not going to get into my background, okay? But I just want to tell you, I didn't have a father. And I've never gotten over the loss of that. And I don't want my son to be without a father. So I have to turn you down. I'm going to stay in town, take him to his golf tournaments. He is He's a genius on a golf course. He's got 25 first place trophies. He's you know, just 10 years of age. But I can't be without him. And I don't want him without me. He almost got tearful. He said, oh, my God, how wonderful, he said. He said, but we got to do something. And I just blurted out to him. And I said, Francis, you know what you should do? He said, what? I said, you should do the Italian roots. He said, what the hell are you talking about, Italian roots? I said, didn't you see that series on ABC about Kunta Kinte, the African? They went back and did all his roots and made a star out of the writer of it and the actor of it. I said, you should do an Italian roots. He said, what? I said, listen, Bing Crosby died last year on a golf course. He was 77 years of age. You don't hear any of Bing Crosby's songs today. He said, holy kid, he was my idol. Don't be putting him down. I said, I'm not. I'm just saying that he was an entertainer. You are not just an entertainer. You're a social force because if you and your rat pack, Hadn't sung High Hopes for John Kennedy, he and Jackie would have never gotten into the White House. And there's no doubt about that. And it's true. That's what happened. And his eyes lit up. He said, well, what are you talking about? I said, here's what I'd love to do. Let me come to your place in Palm Springs every weekend for the next six months or year. I will sit you down and I'm going to ask you questions about your life. But in the final tapes, you will never hear my voice. You're going to be looking in the camera and telling your story. I will find people over four decades who've been romancing to your songs, who got married to your songs or divorced to your songs. I'll find people who loved you. I will find people who hate you. And the first time I saw you was 17 with Sam Giancana. He froze and he (laughs) stared at me. I thought he was going to punch me. All right, we're going
0: we're gonna to hold it right there, John. We'll take okay. a quick time out, come back, and you'll tell us the rest of this, this story. John Barber, he's got a million of them, folks, and they're all in Your Mother's Not a Virgin. Well, not all of them. Quite a few. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. John Barber is with us, and he'll be with us for the full two hours. And in the second hour, just moments away, we will open up the phone lines, take your calls, questions, and comments about his storied career. Uh, So, John, uh, let's just finish up with that Frank Sinatra story. You had pitched him on this idea. You would go to his house in Palm Springs every weekend for six months, and you would interview him about... Ah, uh, his career, about his Italian roots, and so forth. So, how did that go
1: over? Uh, he he absolutely loved it because I said to him, "I said, you know, you will own all the tapes. Uh, I will I will edit and finish it." And I said, as I said, Mr. Sinatra, you'll never hear my my voice. And I said, it'll be five one-hour shows, Monday through Friday. The entire world will stop to watch you telling this story of your life. You will be telling the first visual autobiography in history on television. And he lit up and he stood up and he said, when can we start? I want you to get me a 10-page outline of this and bring it back right away. So I went home and in an hour, I had the 10 pages together. I came back and gave it to Dorothy because Sinatra was in a meeting And I left. He called me two weeks later. He said, when can we start? And I said, I don't know. He said, what do you mean? I said, Francis, I don't know how this happened. But just by accident, I had a meeting with George Slaughter. And he has a contract with NBC. Even though the um, Laugh-In Revivals died, he has a contract to do four one hour specials, and he wants to know if I could adapt the show that I had on ABC a half hour version could I do an hour version once a week for these four specials and I said, I've been trying for three and a half years to get this on, and I have to do it and real people of course became a monster hit now the first the and now uh, NBC it was nineteen 19- It was 1980 uh, and NBC was banking on the Olympics and they put all their eggs in that one basket and all the eggs got squashed because the United States and the Russians had a problem and the U.S. wouldn't participate in the Olympics. So NBC was in the toilet until real people came along and real people, the first hour special on the number three network NBC was rated about 38th which is horrible in the ratings. Yeah. But we got 8,000 pieces of mail, which was more than the number one show in television. And nobody at NBC understood why it got so much mail. And so the four specials that we had went to six specials, and then the six specials went to an order for 22 hours. And that's how it happened. And as I had predicted... A year earlier, sitting with Maury Gelman at the Daily Variety, I said, this Canadian dropout, if I get lucky, is going to change the face of American television with what I call the entertainment of reality. And indeed, I did. And how did Sinatra take the news that you weren't going to do that that, uh, series with him? He was devastated because he said, you can't do a show about real people. What have they got to offer? Mm. And I said, just wait and see. And, of course, I continued to write stuff for him. And when he saw me once at uh, a a dinner where he was uh, performing privately, he hugged me and he said, my God, I had no idea television could be that good.
0: Wow. When was the
1: last time you saw him before he died? Uh, We had uh, a falling out over the uh, death of Robert Kennedy. And the autopsy of Robert Kennedy that I don't really want to get into right now unless one of your callers asks me afterwards <laughs> it's it's, it's, and since if, yours is and if if a caller asks me, I'll answer it. But if you ask me, I won't answer it.
0: Oh jeez, thanks a lot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but 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 since it's called the conspiracy corner, and I love you and I love your show, is uh, is uh I would like to have a, 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 a' like to comment a little bit about what it is that we are going through, sadly, not only just in this country but in Canada and absolutely all around the world. so if you'd like some of my observations or comments about that, I would be more than happy to talk a little bit about it and of course, in doing that, you can't uh neglect to talk a little bit about Trump since he's the president of the United States for a while.
0: Right, right. Well, uh, we've got uh, about five minutes here before the break. And I, I just I wanted to uh, staying in the, the 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 show business vein, if we could. Sure. Because, uh, you know, Dean Martin, always one of my favorites. I thought, you know, everyone loves Frank, but I thought the the, the one uh, performer who who just made it so effortless, like he was just, you know, like it was rolling off the back of a uh, what's that, you know, water off the back of a duck. It was just so effortless with Dean Martin.
1: Yeah, and, but it must uh, been the beginning. No. Not for Dean at all. And that and Dean Dean was the most professional entertainer I had ever met in my entire life. Uh he was the best prepared entertainer I ever met in my life. And he was so sweet and so warm and so true to his word. Now, he started, uh, at NBC doing a variety show, and NBC thought they were hiring the Italian Ed Sullivan, and as the Italian Ed Sullivan, he would say, well, here's a singer, and here's a comic, and here's a puppeteer, and here's a dance act, and it was bombing. His show was absolutely and totally bombing, and his director was a guy by the name of Greg Garrison, and, uh, Anyway, Dean went to uh, Greg when he heard that he thought his show was going to be canceled and said to uh, Greg, you know, I'm better off making movies. I'm not cut out for television. And Greg says to him, Dean, let me tell you something. More people will see one lousy hour of your show than all of your movies combined. So don't give up on television. And Dean said, well, they're going to cancel it. And Greg said, that's because you're not Dean Martin and you're not Ed Sullivan. You must be Dean Martin. And he said, what do you mean I must be Dean Martin? He said, what are you? And Dean said, I'm a saloon singer. Yeah. And you like, you like, what do you like? Well, I like a little booze. What else do you like? Well, I like pretty women. (laughs) That's right. And that's how, how you should be on your show. You should open your show sitting at a piano bar. With a drink in your hand and then surrounded by a bunch of girls called gold diggers, you know, because that's the only kind that would be attracted to you because you're rich and famous. You're Dean Martin, the saloon singer. So Dean said, if I can talk them into having me continue to do it and try it that way, would you produce it? And Greg says, no, I don't want to produce a television show. I just like being in the booth directing it. And Dean said... Greg, if you produce it, I'll give you half of the show. And Greg said, it's not the half of the show that I want. And Dean said, what is it you want? Greg said, if I'm going to produce it, I have to have the final say of the show. You're just the entertainer. And Dean looked at him and said, will you shake on that? And so they shook hands. So what happened is Greg Garrison became the producer of the show. The show became so successful that Dean Martin became the richest and the largest owner of RCA stock in the United States and a mega millionaire many, many times over. And even after he died, his handshake held up in court. And until Greg died, he got half of everything from the Dean Martin show. And when we come back afterwards, I would like to tell you a couple of additional stories about Dean Martin and Greg Garrison and then look forward to taking some calls. Plus, also, I want to chat just a little bit about what we're going through because people need to be able to smile. And I have some of the most terrific, funniest fans who have sent me stuff that your audience should hear because it is just wonderful and then I want you to find that song.
0: I've got it all queued up. We'll do okay. that in the second hour, I
1: promise, John. Yeah, and, and, and when you ask, just ask me to introduce it because I need about a minute and a half to set it up uh, why I did it for Bobby Darryl. Okay. All right, right,
0: will do. John Barber. Your mother's not a virgin. The bumpy life and times of a Canadian dropout who changed the face of American TV. JohnBarber'sWorld.com. And time permitting, we'll also talk a little bit about uh, Jim Garrison as well. Back with more of the conspiracy show. My name is Richard Serring. Don't go away.